And this morning, we return to the dark night. That is Mark chapter 14. Jesus' hour has come. The Son of Man has been betrayed into the hands of sinners, arrested by the mob, and marches unalterably toward the cross. But in order for him to be crucified, he must first be condemned to die. For he's not merely going just to die, but for the scriptures to be fulfilled, he must be condemned, numbered with the transgressors, and executed as a guilty man in the place of guilty men. And so he is taken into custody, the custody of the high priest, and he is brought before the Jewish high court who seek his conviction. And it's to his trial, the deeply ironic horribly unjust and downright blasphemous trial of the Son of God that we now turn. So let's behold him as he testifies to the truth about who he is and what he's come to do. Beginning in verse 53, we'll read through the end of our section in verse 72. Mark writes, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, 
he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. These are God's words. We need the help of God's spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you gave your son for people like us and that you've given us this word that testifies to him. And we pray that this morning, Lord, that you would send your spirit to help us. Lord, I pray that you would help me, that you would help me to confess the truth of your son, that you would help me to hold him forth, that we might receive him afresh and anew and with joy today. Lord, help us hear what you'd like to speak to us. Help us see what you want us to see this morning as we behold your son on trial for us. We ask that you would glorify him and that you would be with us in his name. Amen. In Mark 14, verses 53 through 72, on that darkest of nights, Jesus is on trial, and so is everyone else. All the characters in the story are offering their testimony, if you caught it, as to the identity of Jesus from the members of the hastily gathered Sanhedrin to Caiaphas the high priest, the apostle Peter, even Jesus himself, all are bearing witness. Responding to the, you know, the attorney's question, as it were. Now, in your own words, could you tell us just who this Jesus is? Just who this Jesus is. And we recall the question, who is Jesus? This is the central question of our sermon series that we began almost a year ago now. Who is Jesus? The burning question of the gospel of Mark and the question for us in our lives that we need to ask again and again as we live our lives, as we undergo suffering, as we struggle with sin, face discouragement, and follow Jesus in a world that is striving to disciple us in the opposite direction. Who is Jesus? is the most important reality, the firmest ground that we could stand upon, and the factor that changes everything in every aspect of our lives. If we know who he is, it changes everything about who we are and how we live. And now, after 14 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, this question it has been answered, right, in fits and starts here and there with gradually increasing yet not quite full clarity. But now, in the story, the time has come for it to be settled definitively. And as we move toward the conclusion of the gospel into the trial of Jesus and his crucifixion, every character in the story is drawing their own conclusions about Jesus. Yet, as we'll see today, the right conclusion... <laughs> about who is Jesus. It comes in the midst of many wrong ones. You see, everyone is on trial here. 
but only Jesus tells the truth. They all speak falsely about him. But as Revelation 19.11 says, he is the faithful and true. Everyone else gets him wrong for one reason or another. They don't want to recognize who he really is. Even Peter, his best friend, when asked about who Jesus is, he lies. And he says effectively, he's no one to me. I don't even know him. And as we enter into the, the, the text and the this, this scenes, we see that as Mark is fond of doing, this text is another Markin sandwich. It's a witness sandwich with Peter at the top and bottom and all these witnesses crammed in there with what Christ has to say about himself nestled in the middle. This is a witness sandwich. But the top and bottom, church, of this sandwich are the moldy, rotten bread of false witness. And Christ's good confession, it comes at the heart, but it's contained within man's failure to confess him as he really is. Consider what we just read. The Sanhedrin, they call him a criminal. Caiaphas declares him to be a blasphemer. And Peter denies that he knows him at all. No one speaks the truth about the Savior. And here's where it hits home for us. Because being honest, we're all tempted in one way or another to bear false witness to who Jesus is in our own lives, aren't we? We may not be on trial like Peter and Jesus. We may not be in this courtroom scene so formally, but we're all tempted with the same temptation to fail to confess him, to confess him falsely, both to ourselves, right, in our own hearts. We could say to ourselves, he's not really that good. He's not really worth it. He's not really concerned if I do or don't do X thing. <laughs> That's not really true. And also to others. Every professing believer this morning is prone to confess something other than Jesus is Lord and Savior by the way that we live our lives. And this morning, if you're not a believer, you may be afraid, reluctant, or even ashamed to confess that you would need a Savior to meet you in the midst of your troubles, your dark night, your problem of, of sin and lack of peace within your conscience. You may be ashamed to concede that. And for us, as we're struggling with our, our witness to him, I don't mean some explicit, you know, renunciation of Christ, some direct you know, recantation and renunciation of Jesus and who he is, but the many ways we think about it that our speech and our actions can testify that we're living for something other than the glory of Christ in our lives. Consider that Peter in the text, he denied Christ without even using his name. Listen to what our friend James Edwards has to say about this. He says, Peter's example is a warning to disciples then and now that faithful witness to Jesus is most important, and get this, most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. Simple and ordinary actions and words. It is in everyday matters, Edward says, that disciples are true martyrs. That is the, the root meaning of the Greek word, which means to bear witness. So right now, I would ask you to ask yourself, are there any areas in your life where you avoid, like, like Peter was doing, being associated with Jesus? Any areas of your life where you don't want to be found out as a Christian? 
where you live, where you talk, where you act like your faith in him is a non-factor. And ask yourself, why is this this morning? What motivation lies underneath that avoidance, that distancing, that dissociation from Christ? Consider this question as you listen to the sermon this morning. And as we do, I believe today that we need to square with the reality that like Peter, all of us have already or will experience times when frankly, it's hard to say that we know Jesus. We might be scared of what other people think if we would claim and confess him. Where we might be afraid of what could happen to us if we don't agree with them. Where there might be ramifications, where there might be discomfort that comes from claiming and confessing and living a life consistent with that confession of Christ. For any reasons, we might be ashamed to admit sometimes that we need a Savior. For many reasons, we might be ashamed to admit that we are His. But the good news this morning is this. It's that though we are often ashamed to call ourselves His people, Jesus is not ashamed to call himself our Savior. Though we are ashamed, he is not. Though we might be afraid to claim him, he is not afraid to claim us as we are, sin and all. Listen, Jesus, he stood on trial and he testified to the truth that he was the Messiah, the Messiah who came to save us from our sins. And in the midst of all that falsehood swirling around him, while his friend was denying him just outside, and as we so very often follow in Peter's steps time and time again, Jesus, he stood firm and he confessed before the Sanhedrin that he had come for us. And so this morning, as we consider the fears, the challenges, the discomforts that can come and and probably will come, when we confess to be Christians, I want you to consider what it meant for Jesus to confess to be the Christ. When we're afraid and ashamed because of the suffering that might come to us, consider the confession he made in the face of certain death. And as we proceed this morning, we'll turn our attention to the two primary and simultaneous trials in our text. We see Jesus' trial within the house being contrasted with Peter's trial in the courtyard. And as as we do, as we gaze into these scenes, we'll be beholding yet again the resolute faithfulness of Christ to do his Father's will and complete his rescue mission, set side by side with our proneness to unfaithfulness, which leaves us in a desperate need of rescue. And so we begin now by turning our eyes to Christ, the faithful witness, and we enter into the scene in verses 53 through 65. And we recall now, it's the middle of the night during that holy week. As Thursday evening gives way to the earliest hours of that first Good Friday morning, the crowd who arrested Jesus brings him into the home of the high priest, whom John identifies for us as Caiaphas. And an off-the-books, informal council of the Sanhedrin is hastily gathered together to condemn him. Peter, he follows at a distance, and he warms himself by the fire 
outside the house while Christ is under fire within it. And before the night is through, both men will make a confession before their accusers. And as commentator James Edwards says, Peter's distance here, it already foreshadows his denial. We can see where he's headed by where he starts. He's in the courtyard with the temple guards and members of the crowd who had just arrested Jesus and who would later, as we read in verse 65, who would later receive him with blows. Peter has taken his position with them. He's keeping company with those who are hostile to his Lord. And listen, the hostility of those guards in the courtyard is nothing compared to the hostility of the men within the house. And we need to understand what's happening here as we read this scene which might be familiar to us. These men, the Sanhedrin, they didn't wait until the next day to gather in their proper meeting place for formal deliberations on the matter. No, they seized Jesus that evening in the garden and they cannot wait to kill him. Everything about their proceedings and those who tried to just to, to try Jesus, excuse me, everything about the proceedings, it proves that those who tried to condemn him and put him on trial, they deserve to be put on trial and condemned themselves. Listen to what James Edwards says about this scene. He says that according to the Mishnah, which is the Jewish tradition that was codified a short time after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, 23 members of the Sanhedrin were necessary to judge capital cases, cases pertaining to the death penalty with reasons for acquittal, preceding reasons for conviction. I didn't hear anything about acquittal when we read our passage. In capital cases, a verdict of guilty required a second sitting the following day. Two sittings. Both sittings had to take place during daytime. Missed that one. And neither on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival. It is the Passover happening right now. Witnesses were warned against rumor and hearsay not to speak falsely, A charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the accused cursed God's name itself, in which case the punishment prescribed was death by stoning, with the corpse then hung from a tree. The members of the Sanhedrin would meet in the hall of hewn stones in the temple, um, and there is no evidence, Edwards finishes, that the Sanhedrin ever formally met in the house of the high priest. (laughs) So all this to say that nearly every detail of his trial violates the rules for capital cases prescribed in the tradition of the Mishnah. Everything is wrong about this scene. In other words, this trial is a sham. There is no justice here. Unjust men stand in judgment over the righteous one. The unfaithful stewards and tenants of the vineyard of Israel that we saw back in the parable in chapter 12 They convene to condemn the son of the landowner. And as Edwards summarizes for us, the Sanhedrin short-circuited procedures and contravened the law egregiously at points in order to expedite Jesus' execution. That's what's happening here, the hostility he's experiencing at the hands of sinful men. But to secure his execution, they need evidence. (laughs) They need evidence to condemn Jesus, and as verse 55 tells us, they found none. Jesus is innocent, but he appears as already convicted in their eyes. And in the name of of the greater good of their nation, but probably truly more in the name of their perceived best interest, 
you know, something along the lines of, you know, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Jesus, for us in the Sanhedrin and our authority and your authority coming in here, it's not going to work. Or maybe something along the lines of, you know, hey, the Sanhedrin say, we want the kingdom. Uh, but we want the kingdom to come without the necessity of repenting toward the king. <laughs> we want the benefits. We want the blessings. We want you to get the Romans out of town. But we don't want any of the challenges <laughs> that the presence of the king imposes upon us. We want to maintain our position and keep our comfort until a king arrives who is not so intent on calling us out. This, was, this might be what's swirling around in their hearts, and they're now dead set on his condemnation. And as verses 56 through 59 tell us, even their false witnesses that they are drumming up to try to find something to stick on Jesus cannot agree with one another. They cannot agree on any death-worthy testimony, and according to the law of Moses, any... Uh, case here that would be uh, a capital case convicting uh, anyone on trial needs to have two to three witnesses, independent witnesses to justly condemn someone to death. And they drum up all the false witnesses they can, and even those guys trying to corroborate their story cannot agree on the details. They cannot find a conviction. Jesus is innocent. And so what sort of charges were they making against him? From what Mark records for us, we see that there's only one that seems to really receive any measure of agreement. And it's this, that Jesus claimed he would destroy the temple. Verse 59, excuse me, 57 or 58 says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So the charge against Jesus is that he would destroy the temple. And as Edwards says, this is a serious charge. This is like someone saying, I'm going to bomb the White House and the Capitol building and the Pentagon and the Statue of Liberty for good measure too. I'm going to undo and destroy and get rid of everything that makes us who we are as a people. Jesus says, as they construe him, I will destroy this temple. This is a serious charge as the center of Jewish worship and, don't miss this, the seat of the Sanhedrin's power. The temple symbolized the essence and the hopes of Judaism. And so this is the claim they're making against him. And this is, of course, a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching of the true temple that was his resurrected body and of his prophecy against the city of Jerusalem. Jesus did not say that he was about to perform some kind of violent revolutionary attack on the temple and build another one himself, violently overthrowing the current powers that be in order to seize control. No, Jesus taught that God would raise him from the dead on the third day and thereby build the temple not made with human hands, but by the power of God. He taught that the risen and exalted Christ would become the new and true temple, the dwelling place of God with man, inviting us, whoever would come, to draw near to God, not by entering any physical building anywhere, but by entering his presence through faith in his son. That's what he's teaching there. And then further, though Jesus did teach that the temple itself would be destroyed within that generation in the first century, he clearly taught that this destruction would be God's own judgment against his people. Not some wild insurrectionist terrorist attack, but it would be God himself acting in judgment against his unbelieving people. Using the Roman army as an instrument to do his will, to punish them for the rejection of his son, and to show them that that son 
Jesus Christ, the, the stone whom they rejected, was in fact the cornerstone, reigning and seated in heaven, vindicated as the king who had come to his people. And so this is the truth of Jesus' teaching that was misconstrued in order to obtain his conviction. <laughs> and listen, ironically, far from his opponent in the first century receiving this teaching about the coming destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, far from them receiving this as some kind of warning to embrace the sun and repent from the wickedness that they were planning in the vineyard, this teaching actually inflames them to go ahead with the very rejection which would bring about their destruction. They, they follow through with that parable in Mark 12, and they bring about their own destruction through seeking to get rid of the sun. And in all this, Jesus, he's made out to be anti-temple, right? Anti-Torah, operating under an authority he sees that rightly belongs to no man. That's the, the portrait of him that they're trying to paint here. And perhaps most significantly, operating under an authority which threatens the Sanhedrin. An authority that threatens their own authority. An authority that they're probably jealous for. An authority that Jesus brings, which is actually God's own authority. That in their unbelieving hearts, even with all their religious pretense, they reject. Because they're men who prefer to use God to serve their own ends. They don't want to confess Christ as one of the reasons why anyone might not want to confess Christ because, frankly, they don't want to repent. They don't want to change the way they're relating to God. They don't want to change the way they live their life and using God for their own ends as opposed to serving God as their great end. They misconstrue him so they don't have to follow him. They don't want his messianic rule and authority to disrupt their lives and to bring about the loss of their comfortable position because they're rich, they're wealthy, they're powerful, they're seated in the halls of the Sanhedrin and they're working together with Rome and things are going pretty well for them. And here comes Jesus to upset the life that they've built for themselves and all the comfort they've accrued. So they want to get rid of him. But even this tactic with the whole temple conspiracy charged against him, this tactic fails. And so in verse 60 we see that Unable to manufacture a testimony against him, the high priest now turns to the man himself. And he says this, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He addresses Jesus and he's trying to goad him into uh, replying, taking the bait on these false accusations, saying in effect, Come on, man, won't you defend yourself? Have you nothing at all to say in response to these serious charges against you? But Jesus says he remained silent and made no answer. He who himself is the truth, the incarnate word of God who never lies, does not dignify these false accusations with any response. He does not rush to defend himself or to protect his reputation, but as Isaiah prophesied of the servant who would come, he opened not his mouth. Though he was oppressed and he was afflicted, Continuing to quote Isaiah 53, he was like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We can't miss this, church. Jesus, his silence here, it speaks volumes as to his identity as the suffering servant of Isaiah. Mark is signaling to the reader as he tells the story here that he is the one Isaiah wrote about. And with that, Jesus silenced like the lamb 
it also helps us to connect to the wider biblical picture of that sacrificial lamb. Listen, here in Mark 14, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus, he stands silent before his accusers. The lamb of God who was completely innocent of any guilt, who as Peter, the apostle, who denied him here, later wrote in his letter, that lamb who was without blemish or spot, foreknown before the foundation of the world and set apart before the beginning to redeem a people for God, this lamb, as Peter continues in the next chapter, committed no sin. Neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, right, when he was insulted, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is his God and Father. And so two things we need to see here. Jesus' silence before his accusers, it teaches us, number one, that he's the suffering servant. He's the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Number two, it teaches us that he trusts God. Did you see that? It teaches us that he trusts in God. In other words, he doesn't feel the need to defend himself from the false accusations of men, because he entrusts the ultimate verdict that will be rendered over him, the true witness to who he is, to come from God himself. Jesus, he lets the men talk because he's confident that his God and Father will have the last word, trusting that his perfect life of obedience to his Father would be vindicated and proven to be the case by his resurrection from the dead on the third day, just as it was. So Jesus, he didn't rush to defend himself, but he trusted in his Father instead. And like Jesus, there's a time for us to be silent as well. Thanks, kids. <laughs> Listen, reflecting on this aspect of Christ's suffering, again, the Apostle Peter, he teaches us that it also becomes an example to us. In 1 Peter 1, uh, or excuse me, 2, verse 21, he writes this. For to this you have been called, Christian, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Following in his steps here means allowing God to defend us. We're given the challenge. There's a time to be silent. Don't defend yourself. Just like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 4 when he was being criticized by the Corinthian church and they were calling into question his ministry and his character. He wrote a letter responding to their criticism. This is what he said. He said that with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, Paul says, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but... I am not thereby acquitted, that is, justified, a legal term which means declared to be innocent. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, he says to the Corinthian church, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose all the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. So here's what Paul says, applying this showing us an illustration of what it looks like to live this out. He says, I don't care about your judgment, Corinthians. In fact, I don't even care about my own <laughs> because what ultimately matters is the verdict that God gives to me. He says, I entrust the appraisal of my faithfulness and ministry to him alone. 
And I don't waste any time, any of my time, being distracted, preoccupied, angered by, or stumbled because of your human opinions of me. And Jesus, he did the same thing before the Sanhedrin, and he did it perfectly. Not taking the bait that we so easily take, don't we, (laughs) of defending ourselves. The times when we just can't tolerate others' disrespect. Those around us, our spouses, our co-workers, and we have to do something about it. We have to get even. We have to defend. We have to fight. The temptation we have to plead our own cause (laughs) instead of resolving to trust in God to have the last word. And so applying this right now, is there anywhere in, in your life <laughs> where you might need to, to close an open mouth, to remain silent and allow God to search you and to speak for you? Anywhere in your life, in, in your heart, where you feel tempted to argue, to defend yourself, or in any way prove yourself according to expectations that haven't come from God, but are being imposed upon you by the fear of man? And this morning, I would just ask and encourage you, believer, if you're tempted to defend yourself, even to your own self, and to plead your own case, and to assuage your own conscience, and try to make yourself out to be something before God, I would call you to repent where you've been preoccupied with yourself in this way, and not with God's glory in your life, and to rest instead in God's verdict over you. And you know what that is? That you and his son are beloved, that you are acceptable, that you have been declared to be righteous in him, totally pleasing unto God, regardless of what anyone else would say about you. And that one day, however misconstrued or rejected any of us might be, or might feel, or might think we are, one day we'll all be raised with Christ in glory. And the vindication that he waited for his father to give will be ours as well. This morning, I would encourage you to allow God to defend you. Allow him to plead your case just like Christ did because he will not fail to win the day, to have the last word and to vindicate his people. And so stop wasting time defending yourself, but trust in God to have that final word. So we see here, Jesus, he's the servant and the lamb, but that's not all the text tells us. For even though he doesn't jump in to defend himself against these false accusations, when asked a direct question by the high priest, he does not shy away from giving a direct answer. And so here we go. This is the moment we've been waiting for from the beginning of Mark's gospel. In verse 61, Caiaphas asks him directly, point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you or are you not the Messiah? Tell us, Jesus, he says, just who are And as we hear this question, we do take in the irony of a proper Christological confession embedded in the high priest's question, and we hold our breath as we wait for Jesus' own response. Because prior to now, not only in this trial, but in the whole story of Mark, Jesus has kept the full meaning of his messianic identity as a secret. He silenced the demons who made a confession and said, you are the holy one, and he he shut them up. He told those who he healed to keep quiet and to go out and not to tell others. He refrained from going public with the whole truth about who he is. But now his hour has come. The cross is before him and the time for silence is broken. 
So look with me at our Lord's glorious response in verse 62. Jesus, he answers the high priest's charge by saying, I am, I am, (laughs) which no doubt is intended to invoke the divine name Yahweh. I am who I am of Exodus 3, even as we heard last week in his arrest. He says, I am, and you to his accusers, that is Caiaphas and all the authorities who stand over him in judgment. He says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh, Jesus, here, he is the faithful witness who speaks nothing but the truth, no matter what it would cost, in the face of all the falsehood that surrounds him. And, listen, it's this very confession, his very confession of who he is, that will be the very thing that secures his condemnation. He confesses, I am, and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. And this answer, it provokes the high priest, we see in verse 63, to tear his garments, which is an act of sorrow, of grief, and probably a lot of pageantry and show here in the midst of this scene. But he tears his garments, and he concludes that the council, with this response, has all the evidence they need to charge Jesus with blasphemy and to condemn him to death per the law of Moses. Jesus' reply that we just read was taken as sufficient evidence to establish him as a blasphemer and as a breaker of the law. But how? Why did his testimony provoke the council in this way? And it's because they believed that Jesus, the man who stood before them, had made himself out to be divine. That's what it means, blasphemy. That he had blasphemed God by making himself out to be equal with God. For he said, I am. And he confirmed that he was in fact the promised Messiah, which itself wouldn't have been blasphemy. But not only this, but that Caiaphas the high priest and the other men who sat in that council that evening would themselves see the Son of Man from Daniel 7. That is, Jesus himself seated where? At the right hand of power. At God's own throne in heaven, which he would approach by coming with the clouds of heaven in fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7, where the one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days, and he is given all kingdoms, all people, all nations to serve him as he reigns over an everlasting kingdom. Jesus says, that's me. I reign with God's own everlasting reign at his right hand. In other words, he said, yes, I'm the promised Messiah, and I'm the one who carries out God's own rule from God's own throne. So there's no way around understanding that Jesus didn't just claim to be the human son of David who would come to claim his father David's throne, but a divine son of God, who was the rightful heir to his heavenly father's throne. Jesus tells the truth about himself. And these claims, church, they exploded the Sanhedrin's preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be. He wasn't just a man God sent to deliver his people from their enemies, but he was the God-man who embodied God's own saving rule, who would come to save his people from their sins, to conquer Satan, to bring about a kingdom which could not be shaken, over which he would reign forever. 
He was much more than the Messiah that they had bargained for. So who is Jesus? Here's the question for us. Who is Jesus? He answers himself. He confirms Caiaphas's question. I am the Christ. I am the son of the blessed. That is God. I am the son of man who will soon be seated at the right hand of power in such a way that even my opponents will not be able to deny it. And this seating at the right hand of God was true at his resurrection and ascension, and it would be testified to dramatically, decisively, indisputably in the coming destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD. In that moment when God judged unbelieving Israel, he would show Christ, the one that they had rejected, to have been right all along, to be the true temple, to be the true king, to be the true authority over God's people because he would remove all the pretenders who stood against him. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. As we heard also in chapter 13, unmistakably seated at the throne of God. And in this way, as Jesus here stands trial before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin will actually stand trial before Christ. He will stand in judgment over them. But it's on the basis of this testimony from Jesus that the council charges him with blasphemy, which itself really is the blasphemy of all blasphemies, to stand before the Son of God and to say he is not God's Son. And they determined to put him to death, mocking him, beating him, as they prepared to deliver him over to the Gentiles. Because though they move to execute him, they cannot follow through on that apart from the help of Rome, which is an appeal they'll make to Pilate, the governor of the, the province, the following day. But meanwhile, that evening, at the same time Jesus is being accused and he's proclaiming the truth, Peter, we turn to him now, is accused of belonging to Jesus, and he profusely declares what is false. And we come to his trial, and we meditate on it for a few moments here. We remember Peter, and we catch up with him in this story. He had fallen asleep three times in the garden, right? He had fled at the arrest, and now he denies his Lord in the courtyard. Christ would stay true to his resolve to save Peter and to redeem him. But Peter... He could not stay true to Christ. And just as Jesus predicted earlier in the chapter, he would deny him three times before the night was through. And here we see that Jesus, he stood trial for us, and Peter, he really stands trial as us. It'd be easy to look at Peter and say, come on, man, how could you do that? How could you deny him? How could you lie about him? How could you turn on your closest friend and your savior? But I believe we do the same. And as we look at Peter, we need to see once again our fickleness and our failure to remain faithful, to live out God's word and live according to his truth. As we look at Peter, we need to see ourselves in him. And so we see here three denials from Peter. Verse 66 says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. <laughs> and here, after Jesus goes face to face and toe to toe with the high priest himself, Peter has to stand up against his servant girl. <laughs> she comes to him in the courtyard and says, You were with him too. And before her, he denies this, saying, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't heard of this guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm trying to just brush this away and disassociate from 
Jesus. She says, you were with him too. But he denies this. And in response, it says, he moves a little bit further away. And he continues to distance himself further from Jesus, both physically and also, you know, within his heart. And it says that in verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began again for a second time to say to the bystanders now, she's bringing in more, more witnesses, this man is one of them. He's one of the followers of Jesus the Nazarene who's come, who now sits within the house on trial. But again, verse 70, Peter denied it. After that first denial, the rooster had crowed and had showed that Peter was moving forward just as Jesus had predicted. We see now a second one. And a little bit later in the evening, we come to the third and final denial. It says, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. They say, hey, hey man, no matter what you say, I can tell by your accent, by your dress, by the way you are and the way you look, you're not from around here, right? We're, we're down south, you're from up north in Galilee, come on. The guy from Galilee, the rabbi, he's inside on trial, you're here out in the courtyard, it's not a coincidence. She recognized you, we recognize you, you have to be with Jesus. He can't get away from being associated with his Lord. But look how Peter responds. It says that as he's here been found out, as he stands convicted upon the charges of being a disciple of Jesus on the basis of his Galilean heritage and their eyewitness testimony, it's as if he took his hand on the proverbial Bible and he swore to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and he said this, as he began to invoke a curse upon himself, saying, let it so be done to me if I'm lying about this, and to swear, solemnly testifying under oath, as it were, that I do not know this man of whom you speak. In the strongest, most emphatic way that he possibly could, he denies any association with Jesus. And really, here in effect, he utters the scariest words that we could speak. He says, I don't know Jesus. He declares that he doesn't know the Savior. He denies any relationship with the Messiah, any connection with the Deliverer and King. He distances himself from his very hope of salvation out of fear of what he might face if he stood with him. And Mark records that immediately before the, the, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Listen, Peter has utterly failed. He slept in the garden three times. He tried to stop Jesus' arrest with the sword and cut off someone's ear. He fled when his friend was seized. And here now, as Jesus stood trial and testified to the truth, he had lied and denied his friend. He didn't just break his promise to die with Jesus and not deny him. He had smashed it into a million pieces in this moment. And because of this, Mark records that he cast himself upon the ground and wept, just as Christ had wept in the garden. But unlike Christ, who wept over the wrath of God, he would face four sinners. Peter wept over his sin, which deserved this very wrath. After his open denial of Jesus, Peter, he stands self-condemned in the court of his conscience and finally comes to term with the reality of his weakness and his failure. 
He didn't march with Jesus toward a glorious victory. <laughs> he would instead cause the Messiah to die in disgrace through his sin. He wouldn't stand with Jesus no matter what. And in truth, he realizes here in this moment that he, Peter, and really all of us, we don't deserve to stand with him at all. And this rude, this cruel, this awful awakening rushes into his mind and heart as that rooster crows a second time. The night is over, and Peter has failed to keep watch. And the dawn of the morning, it gives way to his own bitter mourning over his sin. Laying on the ground, consumed with grief, consumed with fear, he realizes he doesn't deserve to have anything to do with the Jesus who's loved him so. And this is sobering. And this is a warning to us that even the greatest apostle is not immune to being ashamed of Christ. Yet, even in this, he's not beyond his grace. Because church, consider this, that in utter love, Jesus made the very confession earlier in the story that would lead to his death, ensuring that he would be crucified to pay for the very sins of those who had denied him. Did you catch this when we were reading Jesus' trial? Apart from the evidence that he himself supplied, there would have been no cause for the Sanhedrin to deliver him over to be crucified. Jesus, he could have remained silent before Caiaphas. He could have foiled their attempts to convict him and sent the Sanhedrin back to the drawing board. But he spoke. He spoke. And Christ made the confession before Caiaphas that guaranteed his execution. He said, I am the Christ, God's own son who's come to save his people, people like Peter and people like us from their sins. And even as they fail me and deny me, I won't fail to rescue them. Though we were and are so often ashamed of him, he wasn't too ashamed to call himself our savior. And we can take heart in that. And we can confess him as the savior we desperately needed and so graciously received. But this morning, if you never have received him before, as you consider his confession to be the savior of all those who need it, consider the question that Caiaphas asked the council in verse 64, where he said, what is your decision? This morning, what is your decision when it comes to Jesus Christ? <laughs> is he a liar who claimed to be something that he was not? Is he a lunatic who was terribly self-deceived as to what he was doing and who he was? Or is he the very son of God who came, though he was rejected by men, though he has been rejected in our own lives, to die on a cross to pay for our very sins of denying him, of rejecting him, and of living a life like he's a non-factor? Is he the son of God who has come to save you from your sins? And if so, will you confess him today? This morning, confess him. He is willing to be called Savior to all who would draw near to him by faith. And for the rest of us, as we go, as we heard earlier, yes, there is a time to be silent, but in applying this text to our lives, even as Christ spoke, there's also a time for us to speak. And I would encourage us to be a faithful witness to this faithful witness. To be a faithful witness as we consider, yes, we must confess him to be Savior. And ask ourselves again, as we go today, is there any area of your life that you are afraid of or ashamed of associating with him? Are there any places or aspects in your day-to-day -day where you avoid being connected to him? As you consider these things, 
and consider what it could mean for you to be called Christian. Consider what it meant for him to be the Christ, to bear your sin, to stand in your place, and to take all of it upon himself. And would we as a church respond by confessing Christ through singing, right? Through singing loudly and eagerly and with conviction, singing at church, singing at home with our kids, singing songs of his praise, saying, hallelujah, what a savior. We confess Christ, church, by encouraging one another. And what I mean by that is when we're dealing with one another in the midst of the dark moments of our lives, not moving toward each other with generalities, with with platitudes, with sympathies only, but holding out the very person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't be bashful, church, when we encourage one another to hold out Christ and to confess him as the Savior and as what one another needs most deeply. Would we confess Christ through witnessing him, witnessing to him, witnessing to our faith in him? And really, this could mean everything from just being known at work or at school, wherever you are, as a Christian, all the way to sharing Christ with someone else as the only hope of life and peace with God. Let's be bold to witness to him. Let's be bold, at the very least, to be known as his, as much as we can, as often as we can, wherever we can. Would we be quick to point others to Christ as the answer to the biggest and deepest problems and concerns all around us? It's not politics or policies, but it's the person of Christ who has the power to change us and everything out in the public square around us. Let's be quick to insert him into our conversations with those within the church and those without. Let's point and confess and celebrate Christ, who's the great answer to our deepest needs. Oh, church, because Jesus was not ashamed to call himself our Savior, would we not be ashamed to call ourselves his people? We confess that he is everything he set himself to be, Jesus Christ, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess you are the Savior we needed so desperately and the Savior who came so graciously. Would you be magnified in us? Would you embolden us through your good confession to go out and confess the good news of who you are to one another, to our families, to our children, to our Santa Ana neighbors who desperately need to know you? We ask that you would glorify yourself in us as we proclaim you wherever we go. Amen.